Um, so this has been a series where um, Leviticus is a difficult book because it's so far removed from our culture and our current experiences. And so we're having to do a lot more work. And, and you've known this. If you've ever tried to read Leviticus, you've got to do a whole lot more work to try to get um, to, to, to some relevancy or what feels like relevancy. Um, so after the last couple sermons, several of you have hit me up with questions. And I continue to encourage that, by the way. Um, please, I'm, I'm not covering everything, and I won't cover everything. Everything. But if you're doing the reading plan, you're coming across stuff that's rocking your world, that's confusing you, uh, like you've never been confused before. I'm not the Bible answer man. I will never pretend to be the Bible answer man, but I have resources. And if I don't know the answer based on my current study, I will go dig for you and see what I can find. And so with that, um, one of the questions I got asked last week by two of you, we were talking about the sacrifices. And the pronouns in talking about the sacrifices was, let him, let him, he shall bring, he shall bring. And so two of you asked me, what about women? Did the women ever offer sacrifices? And so um, I dug, I dug, I dug, I Googled. Now, Googling's okay for me on this, but you be a little more careful with that. At least I know how to kind of sift through who's liberal and who's not liberal, who knows what they're talking about, who doesn't. But I Googled to see if anybody had written any articles on it. And I will tell you, it is an obscure thing. So there's not a whole lot of clarity on it, whether or not the women were able to come and offer their sacrifices alongside the men, or if the men, the husband, the father were to offer it for the woman. But I will tell you, there's one verse, Leviticus 12, 6, there is one verse, um, and that whole section, we actually will cover that section next week, but that section is about a woman who is made unclean because it's that time of the month, okay? And I know that that may just seem offensive to you, but just know this, Clean and unclean is not necessarily about morality. It can be. Okay, sin can make you unclean, but just because something is declared unclean doesn't mean it's all uh, necessarily morality that made them unclean or immorality, right? So there's sometimes where just ritual uncleanness comes into play. So that's that section of Leviticus 12, and in verse 6, it talks about after that, that, um, that week or so has passed or after she's had a baby, that, that's included in this section, then she can go and offer her sacrifice. That's crazy, isn't it? If you haven't read that yet, just go see how, how, how long they have to wait for uh, if they had a girl versus if they had a boy. That's just crazy. It doesn't make sense to us. But anyway, that's the one thing I could find for those of you who asked that question about women. Otherwise, most every scholar, most every Bible scholar that I read, it, it was obscure. They couldn't really give a clear answer besides pointing to Leviticus 12, 6. Um, the other question I got last week is actually going to be answered this morning. Um, the question was, um, it kept talking about sacrifices, bring them to Aaron and their sons, Aaron and his sons. And so the question was, why Aaron and his sons? That's this morning. So Aaron and his sons, chapter 8 through 10. So the book of Leviticus, as we look at it kind of as a big flow, there's a couple ways to look at it. We watched a video that broke it up into a symmetry where you've got uh, um, some things on the front end of the, of the book about sacrifices and some things on the back end. And then you've got some things about the priests. And then on the back end, you've got some things about the priests. And then you've got some things about purity. And then you've got some things about purity. And then right there in the middle was chapter 16. So there's one way of looking at it that way. Uh, the way we're actually approaching it for the sake of the messages is more linear in that we looked at one through six, uh, one through seven sacrifices. Eight through 10 covers priestly duties. Uh, 11 through 15, we'll look at next week. It'll be about the unclean, clean situations, things like that. 
And then uh, chapter 16 we'll do on its own as its own standalone sermon. And then what we're going to do for the rest of the book, because if you were to keep reading chapter 17 and on, what you're going to find is there's a, that's where a lot of the individual laws come into play. So we're going to pick maybe a few of those laws or there's festivals as well. So we might, we might do a, a sermon or two on a festival or something like that. So we're just going to kind of sample the rest of the book that way to kind of get a feel for it. Um, but as we are going through the book, 8 through 10 is where we're at this morning. It's about priests. And, and we've mentioned priests so far because we've talked about about, um, about sacrifices. And I know some of you have already had questions about that, priests. Because when you hear the word priest, there's an image that comes to your mind based on your current experience, based on our current culture. And it is completely different than what the priest is in the Old Testament. Now, to be sure, there's certainly some similarities because that's originally what it was based on. But for some of you, maybe when you hear the word priest, you think of a man who wears a collar you know, he's got a white shirt and then he's got that white clerical collar that sets him apart as a priest. So there's some clothing that sets him apart. You think about a man, if, if you're thinking about the Roman Catholic Church, you think about a man who's never been married, who's, who's been called the celibacy. Um, you think about a man who you probably heard people call father, or maybe if you've got a Catholic background, you've called father. Um, you've got a man who, 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 who um, unfortunately, because some people have made bad choices and the church has been impacted by that, maybe your images come to mind about power abuse and corruption corruption and scandal when you think of the word priest. And maybe some of you are just thinking about your favorite band from, from years past. <laughs> Judas, priest. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, that was too far. Well, that was too far. You guys don't bring that kind of sin into this room. No, come on now. All right. So priest, so that's what we're talking about. So, so it, it's an obstacle that we have to overcome because we have to understand what am I bringing to the text? And by the way, this you should always do when you study. What am I bringing to the text? What's my biases? What's my experience? What's my opinion? What am I bringing? I got to set that aside. Because my first order of priority is I want to see what the text says. I want to understand who's writing it, who's it being written to, the time frame, the culture. I want to understand what it would have meant to them. And then and only then, after I understand what it meant to them, then I can start to say, okay, well, here's how that would apply today. Okay, so we've got to set some of that stuff aside, perhaps more this week than any other week, because maybe you've got some baggage, because we're going to talk about priests. And here's where I want to go this morning. And this is intentionally worded to shock. You need a priest if you are to live in the presence of God. You need a priest. I need a priest if we are to live in the presence of God. But that is not likely how you're thinking. Okay, so let's, let's take a look. What we're going to do, 8, 9, and 10 cover the priest. The broad outline of that, if you're reading through, is chapter 8 deals with Aaron. Now, the reason Aaron and his sons are, are the focus of this is because Aaron, the Mo, uh, brother of Moses, was designated by God early on to be the mouthpiece for Moses. You might remember this from Exodus 3. Moses was told to go to Pharaoh, and Moses said, but I have a speech impediment. I don't speak well, God. And, and, and how, how am I going to go to him and, and, and talk to him? And, and, and God has some words with Moses, you know, something along the lines of, don't you think I know that I made you? You know, don't you think I can, I can empower you? But anyway, Moses continued to pro protest. And so God says, I will send your brother Aaron then to be your mouthpiece, to, to, to speak for you. So Moses and Aaron teamed up and, and Moses was the prophet of God and Aaron functioned as the mouthpiece. Well, along the way, as, as God's people have been redeemed, that happened in Exodus. Remember, they were in slavery in Egypt. God brings them out of slavery and now he's leading them to the, the promised land where he's, he's gonna have them live. But remember, the question Leviticus is asking is how do sinful people live in the presence of a holy God? 
God has redeemed these people out of the slavery of Egypt. Most of them have never seen or experienced God the way they just did with all the plagues and the delivery from the Exodus and the parting of the Red Sea. And so now they've got this image of this God and this experience with this God. And they're very clear on one fact. He is far bigger than I am. He is far holier than I am, far powerful than I am. How do I live in his presence? And so that's where we went last week with the sacrifices that it requires a ransom, that sinful people require a ransom, something else, someone else to take their place in order to stand and live in the presence of God. And if something else or someone else doesn't stand in their place, then the, 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 the judgment that you incur is death. That's what, that's what was coming your way. So the ransom was a way that sinful people who were deserving of death before a holy God, the ransom was a way that they could then live in the presence of God. But it's not just them living in the presence of God. See, one thing God has promised is that he's going to live in their midst. He's going to physically manifest himself in a way where he is going to physically be among his people like no other God has ever been among their people. Now, pause for a moment. Because God is going to physically dwell in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, the, in the temple, in the tabernacle. But don't think for a moment that because his presence is being manifest in the tabernacle, in the temple, that in those moments he's nowhere else. God is everywhere present. He's omnipresent. So even while his presence is, is physically dwelling in, in a way in the temple, in the tabernacle, he's still everywhere present. He still knows what's going on across the world. Okay, so, but he's going to live in his, among his people in a very unique way. So how do then sinful people relate and live with this holy God? And how does this holy God then communicate and relate with these sinful people? Enter in the priests. Enter in the people who are set apart by God to be able to speak on behalf of God to the people and on behalf of the people to God. The priests who are, who are the ones who are going to represent God to the people and then represent the people to God. The priests who are going to, to help the people as they bring their sacrifices, the priests are going to be the ones that are putting that and administering those sacrifices on their behalf so that sinful people who bring their sacrifices and after slaughtering them, hand it over to the priest and the priest will then put it on the altar so that atonement, a ransom can take place. The priests are going to be the ones that are that intermediary, that go-between. And unless those priests do that, then, then there's not a way for them to be able to relate to this holy God. But in order for the priests to do that, the priests who are also human have certain requirements that they have to meet. Aaron and his sons were designated by God to be the priests, particularly the high priests who serve a particular role. So if you were to be a high priest under the law of Moses, you had to come from the, the family of Aaron. And then the tribe of Levi was then implemented to help in the ministry of the temple or tabernacle. They were, they were given certain tasks. But if you were to be a priest, a high priest, the ones who were interceding on behalf of the people, Aaron and his sons. So that's why when we went through one through seven last week and saw all these sacrifices being made and Aaron and his sons being mentioned, it was because they're the ones who are going to be administering it. You bring it and you bring it to them. So chapters 8, 9, and 10. So chapter 8, then, what you're going to see on a high level is Aaron's got to be prepared. Aaron and his sons, the high priests, the, the ones who are going to intercede on behalf of the people, they're still sinful because they're still human. And so they have to be prepared before they can ever go and intercede on behalf of people and, and, and represent God to the people and the people to God. Before they can ever do that, they have to have their sin covered 
has to be atoned for. It has to be ransomed. It has to be dealt with. And so chapter 8, you see that taking place. Sacrifices being made so that Aaron and his sons could be prepared to be able to go and offer sacrifices. Chapter 9, then what you're going to see is Aaron and his sons starting to minister in their role as priests. So you're going to start to see them offering not only sacrifices for themselves, but then they're going to begin offering sacrifices on behalf of others in the, in the community. Chapter 10, you're going to see how serious God is about the priests following the instructions exactly the way he puts it. So let's walk through some of that. But here's where we're going. You need a priest if you are to live in the presence of God. So under the Old Covenant, so remember last week we talked Old Covenant, New Covenant. The two parts of your Bible, they're split in half, r- roughly half, not, not really. It's 39 books in one, 27 in the other. But there's something in the middle there that, that separates them. So you've got an Old Testament and a New Testament. Testament is just the Latin word that means covenant. And so you've got the Old Covenant and you've got the New Covenant. And so in the old part, the left side of your Bible, what you've got is God operating and, and, and relating to people based on the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the one he made with Moses, the law. On the right side of your Bible, there's a key event that took place. Jesus comes in the flesh. He lives, he dies, he raises from the dead. What you have now is God operating and relating to people based on a new covenant because Jesus has come and fulfilled the old covenant. So under the old covenant, which is where we're at with Leviticus, Priests under the Old Covenant must have their sin atoned for. So let's take a look at that. Chapter 8, verse 14. So this is Moses and Aaron and his sons. Then he brought near the sin offering bull, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the sin offering bull, and he slaughtered it. You remember last week we talked about they would lay their hands on the the, the sacrifice that was going to take their place, because what they're doing in that moment is they're confessing their sins, and symbolically what's happening is my sin is transferring to that which is going to stand in my place, so that I don't incur the judgment for my sin, but that which is standing in my place, the substitute, the sacrifice, the ransom, it's going to take my place. So I'm putting my hand on its head so that I'm confessing my sin. I'm transferring that over. That's what they're doing here. So they slaughter it. Moses then took the blood and put it all around on the horns of the altar with his finger and decontaminated the altar. Ironic, isn't it? I mean, like, we think about decontaminating, and if you're older school, you spray some bleach. If you're newer school, you spray, you spray thieves cleaner, right? I heard a right over there. I heard. I, I know who you are. All right, right? But here they, they throw some blood on it to decontaminate it, uh, and, and, and then the altar, and then he poured out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar and so consecrated it to make atonement for it. So one of the sins that we briefly mentioned last week, but we didn't spend any time focusing on it, was the sin offering. Remember, there was five offerings. There was the burnt offering, the, the grain or cereal offering, the sin offering, um, the guilt offering, and, and then there was the uh, peace or the fellowship offering. You could offer any of those five depending on the circumstances. We focused on the burnt offering, which was offered twice daily. But that sin offering in there. Now, you hear about sin offering, and you might think it was for Aaron and his son's sins specifically. But the sin offering was more about cleansing the area, the holy area, the temple, the tabernacle, from the effects of my sin. So if I'm, I'm walking around in this tabernacle, and I'm working throughout the day in this tabernacle, I'm a sinful person. And this is the place where the holy God is, is, is making his presence manifest. So anything I do, just my very presence there, is going to defile it. So the sin offering was designed to consecrate, to sanitize, so to speak, in a, in a, in a sense of being holy, the, the things, the, the, the equipment that you would use, the altar and the lamps and the curtains. It was to sanitize the area from the effects of my sin so that God can dwell there. 
So sin, sin impacts not just me, but the things around me. That's why there was need for a sin offering because I don't need to just be ransomed from my own sin. My sin impacts everyone around me. If I'm a father and I sin, my sin impacts my, fam- my, my kids. If I'm a husband and I sin, my sin impacts my wife. If I'm an employee and I sin, my sin impacts my pl- employees around me, my fellow coworkers. If I'm a mother and you get the point, Sin does not just impact you and me. So if you're thinking right now for a moment that there's a sin that you've got hidden in your life and nobody else knows and it's not hurting anyone and it's okay as long as it doesn't hurt anyone, it's hurting people. You just don't know it. It may be secret. It may be be you and you only, but that's impacting the way you relate to them. That's impacting the way you see them. That's impacting the way you speak to them. That's impacting the way you make your life accessible to them. that's That's what it needs. It impacts everyone. And so the sin offering was about the consequences for sin. And so they're cleansing the tabernacle area, the instruments, the tools, the stations, so to speak, so that Aaron and his sons can make atonement in there. They did that. Okay, we're gonna keep going. Chapter 8, verse 18. Jump down to verse 18. This is the next offering they're making. Then he presented the burnt offering. This is the one that would typically be offered twice a day and then on special occasions as well. The burnt offering ram and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. Same process. Then he slaughtered it. Moses then splashed the blood against the altar sides. Then he cut the ram into parts, and Moses offered the head, the parts, and the suet of the up in smoke. But the entrails and the legs he washed with water, and Moses offered the whole ram up in smoke on the altar. It was a burnt offering for a soothing aroma, a gift to the Lord. Um, the burnt offering was the only sacrifice that was offered where the entire animal was burned up. And it was designed, uh, um, the, the way the burnt offering really functioned was to satisfy the wrath of God, to, to smooth things over, so to speak. So, so that's why it's often described as a soothing aroma, a gift to the Lord. That bull is standing in the place of sinful people. Um, the other question I think I got earlier this week, maybe it is an email, was when you think about how, how many people were in Israel, I mean, it was several hundred thousand at the very least, perhaps more than that. Um, and you think about sacrifices, um, y- you would be constantly offering sacrifices. And, and I don't think that's, that's exactly how we would picture, uh, it's not exactly how we would picture it. So it's not that like, oh man, I just had a thought, going back to the tabernacle, honey, see you later. It wasn't, it wasn't so much like that because every day, twice a day, the priest was offering burnt offerings on behalf of the people. So those burnt offerings on behalf of the people were, if you will, kind of sustaining the the people and soothing over the wrath and satisfying the wrath of God towards sin so that every day, morning and night, there's a soothing aroma before the Lord so that he knows that 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 bull, that ram right there, it's standing in the place of the people so that you're not having to go every single time you have a misplaced thought or you have an impure thought. But there were specific occasions where absolutely you touch something dead, you're unclean. If you, want to, if you want to be clean, there's a period of time you wait, and now you've got to go off of sacrifices. So there was those things. But, but, but don't think like the way you and I live our life now. If I sin, the moment I'm sinning, I'm confessing. If, if I have another thought, man, I'm confessing. If I, if I cuss out of anger or, or, or maybe at all, I don't know, but I'm, I'm just sinning, right? And so I'm, I'm just I'm confessing, right? It's not like every time I would be confessing nowadays that I would be bringing a sacrifice then. Okay, because those burnt offerings, morning and evening, are being offered on behalf of the people. And here they're offering a burnt offering, just as the Lord commanded Moses. All right, that's the second offering to get Aaron and his sons ready. 
We keep going in chapter 8, verse 22. Then he presented a second ram. This is now the third offering that they're making. This one's a unique one, and we didn't cover it last week because it's specifically tied to this. This is the ram of ordination. That's a word that um, you, you might hear if you've been around churches. Um, a pastor or minister gets ordained. It means we are set apart for ministry. We are, uh, people are acknowledging the call of God on your life and they're setting you apart. And there's different churches handle it different ways. But, but what it basically means is you're being set apart for ministry. Ordination, Aaron and his sons are being set apart to carry out the work that the Lord has for them. So they're going to offer a sacrifice on behalf of this. So they offer the ram of ordination and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the ram and he slaughtered it. Most, uh, Moses then took some of his blood, and, and here it is, and he puts it on Aaron's right earlobe, on Aaron's right thumb, on, his, on, on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Next, he brought Aaron's sons forward, and Moses put some of the blood on the right earlobes, on their right thumbs, and on the big toes of their right feet, and Moses splashed the rest of the blood against the altars of the, side, uh, the sides. Why? <laughs> I mean, you read that, and you go, Why? Why right and not left? Why even put it on them to begin with? Okay, they're being set apart for ministry. The blood is covering sin, right? Remember, that ram has died in the place of Aaron and his son's sin. Now, why the right side? Because in the ancient cultures, the right side was the dominant side. The right side was the most powerful side. When you read about in the scriptures and it describes God in human language to help you and I understand what God's like and it's talking about God's strength, what side arm does it talk about? God's right hand, because that's the right side. If you were a fighter, a warrior, you would, most of the time, unless you were one of those rare lefties who were very skilled that we read about in the book of Judges, but most people, you would use your right hand. And so the right side, the dominant side, the, the, the more significant side in, in thinking, but it's representative anyway, it's symbolic. They're putting it on the ear so that the things that I hear, I'm consecrating that to the Lord. The things that I do and the things that I hear, I'm doing that unto the Lord. They put it on their hands so that the things that I carry out, I'm carrying it out as consecrated to the Lord. I put it on my, my, my big toe, my right foot, because where I go and everything that I'm doing, it was meant to symbolize everything that I do. I'm doing it to the Lord. And so they were being set apart. So that's why the right side, and that's why likely the earlobe, the thumb, and the foot. It's just representing the whole, the whole person. All right, so three, three sacrifices are being made for Aaron's sons just to get them ready to be able to go into the tabernacle and represent the people. All right, look at verse 30, chapter 8, verse 30. Then Moses took some of the anointing oil and some of the blood which was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his son's garments with him. So he consecrated Aaron, his garments, and his sons and his son's garments with him. Um, if you were to go back to Exodus chapter 28 and 29, you will read more about the garments and the special type of clothing that the priests would wear that would set them apart. All right, so that's the, the clothing and the garments. All right, that's chapter eight. So Aaron and his sons getting ready. All right, chapter nine, verse six. So then they go into this, this secluded time, this isolation time, I believe it was seven days. And then on the eighth day is when they come back. So seven days they had to, to go away and be isolated so that they're being purified. And then now it's the eighth day. So we've already offered three sacrifices on behalf of Aaron. Now he's gone away for eight day, uh, seven days. Now it's day eight. And guess what they're going to do? Verse nine, chapter nine, verse six. Then Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded you to do so that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Moses then said to Aaron, approach the altar and make your sin offering and your burnt offering. So, so Aaron, you've now got to go and you've got to make a burnt offering again 
and another sin offering and make atonement on behalf of yourself. And then look at this, and on behalf of the people and also make the people's offering and make atonement on behalf of them just as the Lord has commanded. So now, after coming out of that time of cleansing, that time of purification, Moses once again has to, Aaron once again has to offer the sacrifice. That's a lot of sacrifices. Here's what you should be getting from that. Sin is pervasive. Sin is everywhere in you. It impacts every part of you. There is no part of a person that sin does not in some way impact. Because we are born impacted by sin, we are infected by sin, every part of us, apart from God's grace, would be ruled by sin. It's only by God extending his grace that sinful people are able to operate in a way that's outside of that sin. And so here in the Old Covenant, they're having to make these sacrifices. Even the priest himself, Aaron and his sons, all these sacrifices. Listen, I don't know what your experience has been with pastors and ministers. Don't put us on a pedestal. I've worked really hard over the last 70 years to, tell, to tear down that pedestal that some of you put me on. I don't want to live on it. I don't want to live on it. But people, people will naturally put a person, a pastor, a minister on a pedestal. Somehow we're holier. Somehow we have, we have God's ear more than, than you have God's ear. That's just not true. Now, if we were in the old covenant, maybe that would be true, but not under the new covenant. And, and so you, you, you put a higher expectation on us. Now, listen, there's certainly standards that pastors, elders, ministers follow that are scriptural, that, that call us to a, a certain standard to be qualified for these roles. But listen, it's not, like, it's not like everyday people that are not pastors and ministers and elders can say, well, only the elders and pastors have to live moral lives. No, we're all called to it. It's just that if you're going to be able to be in a position of a pastor, elder, minister, then these, these have to be consistent and characteristic of your lives. But listen, don't you dare put us on a pedestal. Our sin is just as pervasive, pervasive as your sin is. We sin in many of the same ways that you sin. We have many of the same thoughts that you have. We have fits of anger that, that sometimes take over us. Our mouths don't always say clean things, right? And, and we do things that, that are all, uh, not always loving. We are just like you, and we, just like you, are in need of a savior, of a substitute, just like you. Don't put a man or a woman on a pedestal because they have a position in ministry. Because the other side of that is, if they do fall, it's going to wreck your world. And it shouldn't. You need to have a healthy, robust understanding, a theology of sin and its impact and, it, and, and how it is impacted everyone, even the people that stand before you and preach the word. It doesn't mean that we're living in some kind of secret sin. It just means we're impacted just as you are. Moses and Aaron had to bring sacrifices on their own behalf, just like they were going to have to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people that they were representing. All right? I didn't plan on talking about that, but it seemed like a good moment. All right, let's, let's keep going. So now they're starting their role as a priest. Now they are interceding on behalf of the people to God and representing God to the people. So they're going to be instructing the people, here's the type of offering that you need to bring. They're going to be teaching the people so that the people know these are the types of animals that I can bring. So these priests are teachers, they're intercessors, they're mediaries. They are the ones that are representing God and then representing the people. All right, we keep going in chapter 9. Jump down to verse 22. What I'm trying to do is just give you a snapshot. 
Verse 22, then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them and descended from, uh, from making the sin offering, the burnt offering and the peace offering. Moses and Aaron then entered into the meeting tent. When they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord. See, this is all of what Leviticus is moving to right here. The glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Then fire went out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat parts on the altar. And all the people saw it. So they shouted loudly and fell down with their faces to the ground. This is all where we've been leading up to is when the presence of the Lord comes and dwells among his people in that unique way that only God is going to do with these people. That's what they've been preparing for. That's what happens. Aaron finishes the cleansing process. He goes and he starts to make sacrifices on his behalf. Now on the people's behalf, whoo, the Lord accepts the offering. He's pleased with the offering. He now comes and dwells among his people. And now from that day forward, almost every day for years, for centuries, God's presence is going to be physically among his people in this tabernacle, which eventually gets built into a temple. But chapter 10, it's extremely important that you pay attention to what God says and you do it how he says, especially if you're a priest representing God to the people and the people to God. You need to do it as God prescribes. You don't get a better idea and do it your way. You, you don't take a guess at something that you're unsure of. You do it as God has instructed. Otherwise, there's serious consequences. And so look at chapter 10, verse 1. Right after God has brought fire down from heaven to consume the sacrifice as, a, as an acceptance of those sacrifices, then Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, remember these are priests with Aaron, each took his fire pan and put fire in it, set incense on it and look at it and presented strange or unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them to do. Maybe they were just doing their best and they're going, oh yeah, that's the one we do right now. Maybe, maybe they had some idea that, hey, we did this back in Egypt, let's try this. We don't get those details, but all we know is they did what the Lord had not commanded them to do. And the type of fire that they were burning in their incense altar was not authorized by the Lord. The type of incense, the, the, the timing of it, whatever the case, they were not in compliance. So verse 2. This time, fire comes down from heaven. It went out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them so that they died before the Lord. The first time fire comes down from heaven, it's to accept the sacrifice of pleasing aroma. You obey God, there's blessing. The second time it comes down from heaven is to consume those who have defiled the Lord, who have disobeyed, who have not acted in compliance in accordance with the Lord's instructions. Sin is serious before God. You and I read that and we're going, but they, they just got started. It was like day one on the job. Sin is serious when it comes to the Lord. And if you think your sin is not that serious, you have a faulty view of God and you have a faulty view of sin. It's stories like this, or in Acts chapter 5, where Ananias and Sapphira, some of you remember that, where they're, they're lying and they're holding back some money, and they lie to the apostle Peter about how much money they're giving to the church. And what happens? They get struck dead by the Lord. Why? Because you are lying to the Lord. And in that moment, God was trying to teach his people something. Same here. You don't take for granted who the Lord is and how your sin is seen before him. Verse 3, Moses then says to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke. Among the ones close to me, 
I will show myself holy. And in the presence of all the people, I will be honored. So God, in order to show himself as holy, when people who are representing him do something unauthorized, he must deal with those people. Otherwise, his holiness is defiled. He must. And so God says, my name was at stake here for those people who were representing me and those people who were seeing that. So Aaron just kept silent. All right. I'm going to throw up a few verses here from the New Testament. It's going to be kind of all over the place. So maybe just write down the references, but you probably won't have time to flip to each one. What I want to show you now is under the old covenant, the priest had to make atonement for their own sin. But under the new covenant, we have a better covenant because we have a better priest. Remember, I started out by saying you need a priest in order to live in the presence of God. We have that priest. So here we go. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 and 26. This is speaking about Jesus. So he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. For it is indeed fitting for us to have such a high priest. Who's that high priest? The author of Hebrews is saying Jesus is that high priest, the one who's interceding for us. He's holy. He's innocent. He's undefiled. He's separate from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need to do every day what those priests do to offer sacrifices first on their own sins and then for the sins of the people since he did this in offering himself once for all. So the author of Hebrews is saying we have a high priest. He's far better than the priests in the old covenant. He is the priest of the new covenant and he doesn't have to do what the old covenant priest did. He doesn't have to first go and offer sacrifice on his own behalf. Why? Because he's like us in every way except without sin. Jesus had no need to cleanse himself before he interceded on behalf of sinful people. And he doesn't have to go and repeatedly offer sacrifices on behalf of sinful people. Why? Because the sacrifice that he offered himself was good once for all time. We have a better priest because we're under a better covenant. All right, we go on. Hebrews chapter 8. Verse 5 and 6, the place where they serve, so he's talking about the tabernacle and then later on the temple, physical buildings, the place where they serve is a sketch and a shadow of the heavenly sanctuary, just as Moses was warned by God as he was about to complete the tabernacle. For he says, see that you make everything according to the design shown to you on the mountain. But now Jesus has obtained a superior ministry since the covenant that he mediates is also better and is enacted on better promises. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, look, the tabernacle, it was physical. It was here on earth. It was meant to picture something far greater. It was for you and I to be able to understand more about who God is and, and where he dwells. But it wasn't, it wasn't the end in itself. And so Jesus doesn't enter that tabernacle. He doesn't enter that temple. He goes into one that's far greater when he ascended into heaven. The sacrifice that he offered was accepted from the Lord. All right. There's a little bit lengthy here. Chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9. But now Christ has come as the high priest of the good things to come. He passed through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands. That is, not of this creation. And he entered once for all into the most holy place, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. And so he himself secured eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkled on those who are defiled consecrated them and provided ritual purity, how much more will the blood of Christ, 
who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Purify our consciences from dead works to worship the living God. And so he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the eternal inheritance he has promised since he died to set them free from the violations committed under the first covenant. Jesus is a far greater high priest. And guess what? You, I, need a priest to live in the presence of God. I cannot come before the Lord and offer anything on my own. I must have a priest offer it for me. And so Timothy says this. There is one God and one intermediary between God and humanity, Christ Jesus, himself human, who also gave himself as a ransom for all, revealing God's purpose at his appointed time. You need a priest if you are to live in the presence of God. Jesus is that priest. Now, am I that priest for you? No. I cannot represent you before God the way Christ does. I can go and pray on your behalf, but guess what? You pray on your behalf too because God hears that too. He doesn't hear my prayers more than yours necessarily. Now, if, if, if one of us has some sin in our lives, God's not gonna hear that one as clearly. That sin's gotta be dealt with. But listen, this, this thinking that, that a human, a mere human, some man with a clerical collar or some woman with a clerical collar or some person who stands on a stage in front of you week to week and teaches you the Bible, that that person represents you before God, that's old covenant stuff. We're, we're past that. We have a priest who is far better than anyone you will ever put your trust in here in this world. And he is, he is without sin, so he doesn't have that going against him. And then he stands to intercede on behalf of sinners. You need a priest. You need that priest. You need Christ if you are going to live in the presence of God. And so some of you this morning, you've not trusted in Christ. And, and maybe you think, maybe you don't think like this, but maybe the way you're living your life is, I'm just going to try my best and see how it all shapes out in the end. Listen, if you try your best, you'll have some great moments in life. You'll make a lot of people happy, but you will never earn your way into God's acceptance because even on your best day, your best acts, your best deeds, your best words are still defiled and impacted by the sin that corrupts every one of us. You need the grace of God to make you alive, to bring you new life into you so that you can then have his spirit who then enables you to do things that are apart from the sin that corrupts you. You can't do that on your own. And you can't do that and expect God to be pleased. You need a priest to intercede on your behalf, to stand in between that gap. And Christ has done that for you. When he died on the cross, he died for sinful people. He himself was not sinful. But just like Aaron and his sons were laying their hands on the, the sacrifice, the animal, they were passing on their sin. Listen, when Christ was on the cross, God was putting the sin of sinners on him. That sin was being transferred onto Christ so that as Christ hung on the cross, he was becoming a curse for us. He was taking the curse that the law requires for sin, which is death. It was being transferred to him so that God then would be able to, to satisfy all of his wrath towards sinful people who trust in him on Christ. You and I don't have any role to play in that. We need a priest, and Christ is that priest who stands in our place. And God does not require that you perform for him in order to be accepted. He requires that you respond by believing, by trusting in Christ.
You stop trusting in whatever it is you're trusting in. It's called repentance in the Bible. You repent. You turn away from it. And in turning away, you turn to something else. That's faith in Christ. When I stop trusting in myself, being good or whatever it is, or someone else is blessing me or wearing a certain necklace or whatever it is, I stop trusting in that. I turn away from that. I turn to Christ. That's faith. Repentance, belief. That's what's required. If you've done that this morning, if you've already trusted in Christ, then here's a few things we can take away from, from something this morning. Our worship is, is no longer building-centric. And it's not person-centric in the sense of humanity, like me. It's not personality-driven. Our worship is centered on a person, but it's the God-man, the one who is both human and divine. Our, our, our worship is not tied to a building. We don't need a building to worship. It's a great facility to be able to gather in. But listen, this becomes an idol real quick for a lot of us. A location. And this is true for all people. We start to put our pride and our, and our hope in a building. Listen, our focus, our worship under the new covenant has nothing to do with the building. It's to be done in spirit and in truth. It's focused on a person. You worship wherever you go. You don't have to wait till Sundays to worship. You don't have to wait till you're here to worship. Our, 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 our worship is person-centric in Christ alone.